0: feels almost unbelievable, but in the middle of next month, Castle Castlereagh Fellowship will be 30 years of age. Um, it's always quite easy for me to sort of think what that looks like because Reuben was just, uh, you know, uh, weeks old or whatever when the fellowship started. So um, that gives you, that, that image might be quite useful actually as we go through tonight, but Obviously, in the run-up to that, uh, I, along with others, have no doubt been reflecting on 30 years of uh, God's faithfulness and just his his goodness to us um, over those three decades. And what I would like to do tonight, then it's a very personal thing, um, but I have been reflecting Uh, On a particular passage of Scripture that the Lord has been using with me um, as we come up to this sort of significant spiritual landmark. So I want to read with you. uh, It's a famous passage of Scripture, it's from the book of Revelation, um, chapter 2, and it is the first of the seven letters that uh, were sent to seven churches in the first century. Christ himself is speaking to these seven local churches. So we're going to read his words to the church at Ephesus. So this is from Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious or to the overcomer. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Before we hear what Christ said to this specific church in the first century, uh, I want to give you a little bit of background that will help you understand what Christ says. Two things by way of background. Number one is just the importance of the church at Ephesus. And this might surprise you. Um, The apostle Paul visited the city of Ephesus on the return leg of his second missionary journey. He didn't spend long there, but obviously what he saw there, he saw the potential to use Ephesus as a base of operations to really get the gospel out there. And so at the beginning of his third missionary journey, he made his way to Ephesus and he spent at least two and a half years there. And had an incredibly challenging but productive time at Ephesus. And that takes you to Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. It tells you what happened at Ephesus, how the church was brought into being. When it came time for the apostle Paul to move on, we know from scripture that Paul left Timothy there. He left Timothy to oversee the work and to, to sort of take measures that would ensure the legacy of the gospel work, to appoint elders, etc. That, and that takes you to the first and indeed second Timothy. Timothy is at Ephesus. We know from church tradition that later on, the Apostle John. In the latter years of his ministry, he was based at Ephesus and its surrounding area. And indeed, 1 John, 2 John and 3 John are written into an Ephesian context. And then, of course, in our New Testament, we have Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's generally accepted that that was a letter that was designed to go around various churches. It's what's called a circular letter. It doesn't have the personal greetings, etc. It was to be read in various assemblies. And even that does not exhaust the place of Ephesus in our New Testament. In the famous chapter, the famous resurrection chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he wants to get across the point that, you know, if Christ is not risen, what are we doing suffering in this life? And he makes reference to his time at Ephesus. He says, you know, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, the reference is undoubtedly metaphorical. He's talking about the intense opposition that he faced at Ephesus. And then when we come to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the whole message of which is going to be, look, be encouraged because God will be present with us in our sufferings, making us sufficient. In his opening remarks, he says, I know you guys know what dreadful hardships we experienced in Asia. They brought me to the point where I actually despaired of life itself, but that's where God met him. You see, if you do the maths, 10 letters in the New Testament, the Ephesian church has a significant place. I wonder, did you know that? Just how significant this church actually was. But the second thing I want to point out by way of background before we actually listen to Christ speaking to this church is I want to just mention the age of the church when we come to Christ speaking to them recorded in Revelation chapter 2. Paul's ministry at the city of Ephesus where the gospel was established was between AD 54 and AD 57, somewhere in there. It's generally accepted that Revelation, the book of Revelation, was written probably in the early 90s, the final decade of the first century, certainly when the emperor was Domitian. And Domitian, he reigned from AD 81 to 96, and it was a time of real difficulty for Christ's followers. So it's reckoned that when Christ is speaking to the Ephesian church here in Revelation 2, the church is probably somewhere in the region of 30 to 35 years of age. It's been in existence for that time. So you wouldn't really call it a new work. You wouldn't call it... A church plant situation. It has become established. It has survived its early struggles. It wasn't snuffed out. And I suppose using sort of a human life, I go back to my comment about Reuben's age, I suppose using a human life you would say that it's it's just starting to sort of flirt with. Entrance into middle age. You know. It's acquired a bit of experience. It's proved itself. And perhaps. It was because. It had arrived at this stage. In its life and maturity. That it actually presents us with what we might call the danger of middle-aged Christianity. And you can think of that in individual terms for an individual Christian. And you can think of that in local church terms, in a corporate context. The danger of middle-aged Christianity So, with that background information in mind, I want to point out five things from Christ's letter to this Christian community at Ephesus. We're going to see Christ's commendation to them, commendation of them. We're going to hear his criticism. Going to hear his exhortation, his encouragement to them. We're going to hear his warning to them. And finally, his promise to them. This isn't an expository sermon. I'm not going to have time to unpack some of the symbolism here. I just want to point out this the picture we're given of Christ himself is of Christ walking in the midst of the seven churches. The churches are represented by lampstands. They're light carriers. And Christ is walking in the midst. Scripture presents Christ in glory to us in at least three ways. The one we're probably most familiar with Christ is seated on the throne of God at the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews tells us that five times. We think we can picture Christ sitting on the throne of God because his work is finished. If you can recall when Stephen was being stoned to death, the first martyr, he was given a vision. Heaven was opened. What did he see? He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So sometimes Christ is presented as sitting and we get the image. Once at least he's presented as standing as his suffering servant enters his presence. But here, the image, the picture we're given is that Christ is walking in the middle of his people. In the midst of these Christian communities. And surely the thought is this: He is intimately aware of reality in those churches. He's not away somewhere where you know he's not just fully cognizant of all that's going on in his people's lives. No, he's he's walking in the midst. So when we come to hear Christ speaking, it's from a position of intimate knowledge of his people's lives. And he starts with words of commendation. Credit is given where credit is due. And there are three things that stand out. They're just there on the surface. There are three things that stand out about the Ephesian church. And they are commendable. The first one is this. The members of the church were busy in their service for God. I know your deeds. Five of the seven churches heard those words. I know your deeds. I know, I know your work. But here Christ amplifies that. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and perseverance. There is one thing that you will not lay at the door of the Ephesian church. They were not lazy they were not spiritually flabby in that way they were utterly engaged in the work of god diligent conscientious even sacrificial service that's a hallmark of the ephesian church and christ acknowledges it second thing so commendable. Not only were the members busy in their service for God. The members were patient. They were enduring. In their sufferings. You know verse 3 is impressive. This this is Christ saying it. You have persevered. And have endured hardships for my name. And you haven't grown weary. If you do a little bit of background reading in Acts 18 to 20, you'll understand very quickly, it was not an easy ride to be a believer at Ephesus. I've already told you that at this time, Domitian was emperor. And the imperial cult had now become established. Caesar is Lord. But Christians say, Jesus is Lord. There was a political collision there. Again, if you read the background in Acts, you'll know that Ephesus was a center of the occult. The dark arts, magic was practiced at Ephesus. That's when the believers came to know Christ There was this recommitment, they burned all their expensive scrolls and incantations. It was the devil's backyard, a society utterly riddled through with occultism. We also know, of course, and we know this from history, that Ephesus had the temple of Diana, or Artemis as the Greeks would say, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the gospel had such an impact in the time of Paul. That it affected the economy. The local economy. Because all the little silver statuettes of Artemis. People stopped buying them. Because they didn't need them. And that's what caused the riot in the city. Now imagine being a believer in that. And Christ says. You've stuck at it. <laughs> You've stuck, and you haven't grown weary. Knees haven't buckled. Wow. Third thing. They were busy in their service. They were patient in their sufferings. And they were orthodox in their beliefs. They were pure in their doctrine. Do you remember when it came time for the Apostle Paul to leave The city of Ephesus. What he did was. He gathered the elders of the church. Together at Miletus. And he warned them. He said you see when I go. After I go. From among your own selves. Men are going to arise. And they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they are going to lead you away. And draw a following for themselves. And the Ephesian church had heeded the warning. They had practiced discernment. They were able to spot heresy. They sent false apostles packing. They rejected the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to go into who they were, but they preached error. They were to them. Error was detected, it was exposed, and it was rejected. And they remained true to the truth. Ephesus was a bastion of truth, a real fortress for the faith. So guys, let that description sink in here. Here was a church that was hardworking, Enduring in a challenging context and staying true to the truth itself. But, and that takes us to Christ's criticism of the church. And there is just one thing, just one. They had fallen out of love with Christ. The zeal, the passion, the freshness, the vitality, the abandon that characterized their former love for Christ. Was waning. Their hearts had begun cool. I'm going to read you a quotation from John Stott. This is what John Stott writes about the Ephesian church: this hardworking, enduring pure, orthodox community of believers. Their love was faltering, weakening, dying. The tide of devotion had turned and was ebbing fast. They toiled with vigor, but not with love. They endured with fortitude, but without love. They tested the message of their hearers, but had no love in their hearts. But toil becomes drudgery if it is not a labor of love. The endurance of suffering can be bitter and hard, if it is not softened and sweetened by love, orthodoxy is cold and dead without the warmth and beauty with it, without which love invests it. To hate error and evil is not the same thing as to love Christ. Let's hear this in Castlereagh Fellowship. Above everything else, Christ looks for our continuing, deepening, maturing love for him. It is all too easy for ministry To become mechanical. And for relationship to become routine. And it's entirely possible. To have lots of activity for Christ. But little intimacy with Christ. I'm going to read another quotation to you. And this comes from Duncan Campbell at the time of the great Hebridean revival. This is what he wrote in the midst of revival. These are days of much activity in the field of the church and mission work, but no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for neglect of the king himself. The devil is not greatly concerned about getting between us and work. His great concern is getting between us and God. Many a Christian worker has buried his spirituality in the grave of his activity. We cannot satisfy Christ with ceaseless activity, steely endurance, the severest orthodoxy if he doesn't have our hearts. So Christ exhorts his people And three verbs chart the way out of the situation that they have got themselves in. Remember, repeat, sorry, repent and repeat. He tells them to remember, to recall the freshness of their love. Their first love. Recall it. And then repent of their loss of love. Loss of that love. And return to the abandon with which they gave themselves to Christ at the start. Christ calls on them before it is too late. This is believers we're talking to. To reject their safe, comfortable, contained love for their Saviour. And then comes the warning. Would it be too strong to say his threat to them? If there is no repentance. If they continue not addressing their loss of love for him. There will be removal. He's speaking to the church. Christ will come to them. This isn't talking about the second coming. It's a very uh, personal visitation of Christ to the people at Ephesus that he knows their lives, their loss of love. He says he will come to them and he will remove their lampstand from its place. Remember a church so busy So busy for God. Enduring in public identification with Christ when it's costly to do it. And so correct in their beliefs. Christ says you will be consigned to irrelevance. If you do not address your lack of love. Please notice what Christ does not say. He does not say that he will dismantle the lampstand. He says he will remove it from its place. Now, this this is tabernacle imagery, okay? In the tabernacle, there was the holy place and the most holy place. And in the holy place where God presenced himself, There was the golden lampstand, seven branches with lights on them. And they surrounded the glorious central shaft. And they shone, the seven lamps shone their light on the one in the midst that upheld them. You get the picture? And Christ says to the church at Ephesus, that it will only be when love burns that you will get to shine your light on me. That you will show my glories. Do you know it's entirely possible for the structure to remain, for the activity to continue, For the numbers to hold, maybe even grow, for the leadership to lead. But in reality, the church has in reality ceased to exist because it can no longer perform the function that they've been given in this world, which is to shine their light on Christ. Love is the fuel by which we shine our light on Christ. No church, no local church, has a secure, a permanent, a guaranteed place in this world. It's continuously on trial if any church, Castlereagh Fellowship included, is to retain its position where in reality we shine our light on Christ. It will be done, only be done, in the maintenance of first love. And how does Christ finish his message to this church at Ephesus. Well he finishes it with a promise. And it's really important that you understand this. That the, the 2011 NIV. To the one who is victorious. To the one who overcomes. To the overcomer. Now John makes it perfectly clear in Revelation 21. Who the overcomer is. It's all true believers. We are overcomers in Christ. We have been promised. Overcomers inherit the new Jerusalem. Inherit all the blessings that Christ has won. The same author John writes in 1 John 4 and 5. Who is the overcomer? It is the one who believes in Jesus. This is a promise to all believers. And Christ in giving this promise is showing the believers how they're going to get back to first love. And he says to this, you see to all overcomers, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And that's putting you right back to the first chapters of the Bible. Sin robbed man. He was cut off from the tree of life in Eden. Mankind was denied that because of sin. And Christ is saying, Remember, to all who overcome, to all my people, I will give you the right the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You're going to live because of what I've won for you. You're going to live forever in God's home. If that doesn't rekindle our love, God's all out of ammo. There's no plan B. He has given Himself. Let me leave you with this. Because that takes us to the cross. How will we stay fresh in our love for Christ if we meaningfully stand near the cross? Keep near the cross. Because Christ will only be truly experienced by his people. And Christ will only be seen by a watching world. When he is loved. He will accept no substitutes. Love if we lose our love and refuse to repent of it and deal with it, we'll merely end up playing church. For only a loving church is a living church. May God help us Not to play church in Castlereagh Fellowship. And not to hide behind. We work hard. We keep going even when we had difficulties. And we keep true to the faith. Christ sees deeper than that. May God help us. To be honest before Him and open to Him. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the Church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.